Welcome to The Past and the Curious. I'm the creator and producer, Mick Sullivan, and this episode has to do with mail. The stories are more interesting than you might believe. First, Victoria Rybel will tell you the curious story of a short-lived mail delivery system that sent young men, and even boys, across the country alone and on horseback. After quiz time, Jason Lawrence shares the tale of a secret subway system from the 1800s. We really think you'll love it. In addition, we've got a new performance of a song made famous by one of America's greatest early entertainers, a man named Fats Waller. We hope you enjoy. If you do, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Send us a message. Find us on the web at thepastandthecurious.com. Leave a review on the iTunes store or on Stitcher. That's really helpful in getting noticed. And please, tell someone who you think might like our funny little program. Now, Benjamin Franklin did a lot in his lifetime. Most people can agree on that. And among other things, for 15 months, he was the first postmaster general of the United States Post Office. The need to correspond with people in other parts of the United States was important at this time, as the 13 colonies, which is what they were known as at the time, were on the brink of breaking away from Great Britain. Letters and documents needed to be sent over great distances, and that was a responsibility that couldn't be left in the hands of the British. Before, during, and even after his time on the job, mail distribution was slow. There simply was no way to communicate with someone quickly over a great distance. Most everything was carried on one road called the King's Highway, which ran north to south for nearly 1,300 miles, connecting Boston, Massachusetts to Charleston, South Carolina. Now, it wasn't a road like today, paved and wide and easy to drive. It was often muddy. It could wash out in a storm, and it would take travelers weeks to make a journey that long on horseback. Pulling a wagon could be even more treacherous. But it was through this road, that was barely a road, that mail would be carried to the colonies. Along King's Highway, there were drop-off points where another carrier would receive letters and packages that needed to be carried further east or west. So a letter from John Adams in Massachusetts, bound for Thomas Jefferson in Charlottesville, Virginia, would be carried through nine states along the King's Highway. And then it might be left at the closest stop, say in Fredericksburg, Virginia, or maybe Williamsburg. It would then be carried by someone else for the 200 or so miles to Thomas Jefferson's home. It would take weeks. So imagine if the news in that letter was important. You can see why people throughout the past were trying to find new ways to deliver messages quickly. And while none of the solutions you'll hear were as instantaneous as it is for you to send a text message to your mom or your best friend, several of their ideas were very clever. And several of them make really great stories. In 1860, California had been a state for 10 years. But all those states today that lie in between Missouri and the Golden State, as it's been nicknamed, were not yet states. No, they were just territories, waiting for enough settlers to make borders and become official. But much like today, 
people were flocking to California. Sure, it's typically pretty nice out there, the ocean's great, and the weather and wildlife are very unique, but there was also gold. And as the population boomed on the Pacific coast, the new western pioneers of the gold rush found themselves very removed from what was going on in the eastern part of the United States. There was a big election coming up, the one that would see Abraham Lincoln made president, and there was the threat of a civil war looming too. Californians had no quick way of knowing what was happening. Sometimes news and deliveries would come by mail on ships, but those ships would have to sail all the way around America, down below the tip of South America, which is pretty darn close to Antarctica, and then back up both continents. You can imagine the news was probably out of date by the time it reached San Francisco or Sacramento. A business tried to solve this problem in an interesting way. In 1860, if you were to open up a newspaper in St. Joseph, Missouri, you might have seen this advertisement they ran, looking for employees. Wanted. Young. Skinny. Wiry fellows. Not over 18. Must be expert writers. Willing to risk death daily. Orphans preferred. $25 per week. Well, how could you not answer to that ad? And when you showed up to the office, this is what you'd learn. You, a skinny, wiry lad of 15 years of age, though maybe you're as young as 11, would play a role in getting a bag of letters and packages called a mochila from St. Joseph, Missouri to Sacramento, California as quickly as possible. In fact, the company promised its customers that anything sent would travel the 2,000-mile distance in under 10 days. This speed was unheard of at the time, and it's why this group of young men called the Pony Express became legendary. Now, before you start thinking, I'm very good on a horse, but I can't ride 2,000 miles in 10 days, especially not through deserts, plains, and mountains, and especially not with wild animals and potentially hostile Native Americans along the way. They'd say, don't worry, there's a plan. You wouldn't ride the whole distance. See, it's broken up so that you'll meet someone along your route and hand off your mochila. It's like a relay race. He'll take it from there until he hands it off to the next skinny, wiry young lad on the trail. But from the moment you leave to the moment you make the next handoff to the next leg on the route, you and your horse will travel at top speed. You'll ride night or day for 75 to 100 miles at a time. So now you'd say, well... I know horses, and I know that one can't run at top speed for very long. Maybe one could run at full gallop for about ten miles at the most. And you, young wiry one, you would be right. That's why every ten miles or so along the 2,000-mile route, you'd find one of the 184 stations. These stations were decrepit little shacks with a horse pen full of horses. As you got close to one, say within a mile, you take a horn the company had given you and blow it to make the loudest, most awful racket possible. The man or woman at the station would be alerted of your coming arrival by the terrible horn music you played, and they'd rush to get a horse ready for you. As you pulled up, you'd grab your mochila, jump off your tired horse, jump on the new fresh horse they got ready for you, and hit the trail again in a flash. There was barely time for you to say hello, please, and thank you to the person at the station. You had a handoff to make, and you'd do this several times before you met your relay partner. 
Once you made that handoff, you'd likely find yourself at one of those stations. There you'd stay, get some rest and a bite to eat, but not for long, because soon enough, there'd be another rider coming from the direction you sent your last mochila. He'd hand you another one, and you'd head out as fast as possible towards the same place you started. Back and forth, to and fro, this would be your life. As fate would have it, though, it wouldn't be your life for too long. The Pony Express made their first run in April of 1860. By November of 1861, it was all over. That's right, the Pony Express only lasted for about a year and a half. Firstly, it was too expensive to operate. There were 400 horses to feed and keep. 184 stations to operate and about 80 riders. It also didn't make a lot of money. Riders couldn't carry more than 20 pounds of mail and deliveries, and charges priced by their weight varied from $5 to $1 per piece. The greatest cause of the Pony Express failure was the fact that the first telegraph cable to span the entire continent was laid in 1861. This was the same year the Pony Express closed up shop. With a telegraph machine, an operator could send a message using a Morse code, named after Samuel Morse, the inventor, from one side of the country to the other in a matter of minutes. The message would be sent by pressing a button connected to the cable in a series of dits and dahs or dots or dashes. These dits and dahs would be electronically transmitted over the cable and on the receiving end could be translated into a regular alphabet. The ability to send messages this fast and this far changed the world. The Pony Express was on a totally new idea. In fact, many historians say that in medieval England, there was a similar network of people on horses who were posted at regular mail stations and would hand off mail deliveries relay race style, just like our young, wiry, and skinny fellows did for 18 months in the 1860s. This is likely why we call the mail the post. Mail handlers, postal workers, and the headquarters, the post office. It comes from the medieval version of a Pony Express, being posted at specific locations to complete the delivery relay. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Okay, people, it's time for a mail quiz. Someone called you a philatelist. Should you be insulted? What on earth is a philatelist? Now, this person might have also said you exercised timbromania, both of which relate to the study of stamps. If you are a philatelist, you appreciate and study stamps. It may mean that you collect them, but that's not necessarily the case. Now, stamps allow the sender to pay for the cost of postage in advance of a parcel being delivered. Before stamps were common, it would be required that the person receiving the letter pay for its postage when it arrived. You could see how this might create some problems. In a famous example, Zachary Taylor regularly received tons of mail due to his celebrity as a military general, 
And at the time, American senders still had the option to pay only a minimal amount, leaving the one who received the mail, in this case, Zachary Taylor, with the responsibility of paying the bulk of the charge. Now in 1847, Zachary Taylor instructed his local postmaster not to even bother delivering any of the mail because he wasn't going to pay for it. Unfortunately, one of the letters sent with postage due was a letter informing him that he was the Whig Party nominee for President of the United States of America. So it sat unopened and unread for weeks. It wasn't until somebody informed him of the importance of that unopened letter that he eventually paid, read, and responded to it. Confused party leaders were relieved when he accepted the nomination and eventually was chosen as president, which unfortunately for him didn't last very long. Question number two. Who was the first woman depicted on a United States postage stamp? Now we sort of threw a trick question at you. Because in 1893, Queen Isabella of Spain appeared on a five cent stamp. She shared that small amount of real estate with a picture of Christopher Columbus. The first woman to have a stamp all to herself was Martha Washington who, truth be told, had a successful life and career long before she ever met George. Other women depicted on stamps have included Pocahontas, author Louisa May Alcott, social reformer and founder of the Hull House, Jane Addams, really interesting lady, nurse and founder of the Red Cross, Clara Barton, Susan B. Anthony, and a fascinating woman named Virginia Dare. She was, if you don't know, the first English baby to be born in the British colonies of America. She and her family were part of the mysteriously lost Roanoke colony, which was in present-day North Carolina. The third and final question. It's also about stamps. An African-American did not appear on a postage stamp until 1940. Can you guess who it was? Though he died in 1915 at the age of 59, Booker T. Washington's influence on the American people was still felt when the stamp was issued two and a half decades after his death. Born a slave in Virginia, Mr. Washington committed himself to learning to read and to absorb as much knowledge as possible. He attended college in the 1880s and later was a leader at the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. Though he didn't always see eye-to-eye -eye with other African-American leaders in dealing with the struggle for equality and an end to racism, his opinions were sought by Teddy Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and many others. He was also able to raise enormous amounts of money for initiatives to help better the lives of African-Americans who had been a part of the enslaved generations. Have you ever been in a drive through lane at a bank and noticed the tube system that rockets a deposit from the car to the teller inside? Pretty awesome stuff, huh? That is a pneumatic tube. Pneumatic describes something operated by air under pressure. 
that bank tube uses compressed air, or a vacuum, to move that little cylinder holding your money through the tube. The cylinder, which is slightly smaller than the diameter of the tube itself, creates a blockage. As air pressure builds up on one side, or is removed from another, the mounting pressure forces the money cylinder blocking the tube to move forward or backward in the tube. Now, if you're like us, you've probably wondered what it would be like to ride in one of those little guys. And, as usual, history's already been there. In 1870, long before a subway system would be successfully installed in New York City or any other American city, a man named Alfred Eli Beach had an idea. He knew about a few pneumatic tube systems in England used to transport notes and small packages. But he had the big idea to make one large enough to comfortably move a group of people. You see, New York was getting incredibly crowded, and people were in need of a way to move large groups quickly, safely, and easily. People, animals, carts, and all kinds of other stuff clogged and cluttered the bustling streets. So if a new type of transportation could happen somewhere besides there, even better. Some people suggested elevated train tracks with cars pulled by horses. But large animals above the street had some drawbacks. A big one is falling manure. Gross. Steam-powered engines were suggested too, but at the time many people were wary of these exploding. The designs were imperfect, and this had happened before. New Yorkers didn't want that possibility whizzing above the heads of the city crowds. The idea of creating a system for moving people underground wasn't unheard of, but many people were scared. The thought of city blocks collapsing when the earth beneath them was removed to build tunnels was terrifying. Alfred Beach believed it could be done, though. He also knew he would have a hard time getting the proper permissions for his experimental subway, so when he approached the city government, he told them he would be building a much smaller pneumatic tube system, one to send mail to the post office. Seems like a no-brainer, right? The city government mostly thought so, too. Imagine a network of tubes underground and out of sight. The tubes have air pumping through them at great pressure. Somewhere, in one part of the city, a parcel of mail would be put into a tube and it would immediately be zipped across town only to appear at the destination at the end of the tube. No human, animal, or street vehicle would need to even touch it. It saved time, labor, and frankly, it was a cool idea. Honestly, it would be a cool idea if you saw it being used today, nearly 150 years later. But Beach never really planned to move mail. He planned to move people. Being as that it was an experiment, and a secret one at that, he would start small, just about as long as a city block. In a sense, it was a classic case of believing the old adage that sometimes it's better to beg for forgiveness than to ask for permission. But Beach didn't see himself having to beg for forgiveness. He saw his creation changing the city for the better. He just had to prove it. So his team started digging. And digging. And digging. The men dug a tunnel that was 300 feet long and ran along Warren Street before making a curve along Broadway. The tunnel would have a diameter of 8 feet and was lined with bricks painted white. Meanwhile, another team was working on the passenger car. It was a lot like that cylinder for money at the bank. It was round to fit in the tube and nearly flush with the white brick walls around it. Both ends were flat, with a door on the face. 
The plug-like wooden car was about eight feet tall, and inside it was plush, with comfortable velvet couches that could easily seat 18 people. It featured fancy wood paneling and, because it was underground, zirconia lights, which was a new form of chemical lighting that was used before electric bulbs. Yet another team installed a giant Indiana-built two-way fan at one end of the tunnel. Just 58 days after starting, on February 26, 1870, it was done. People on the street had heard the construction and knew something unusual was happening. But when they walked into the beautiful, salon-like waiting room, they were flabbergasted. Beautiful paintings, lamps, a goldfish pond, and even a pianist playing a grand piano awaited them when they descended below the busy streets above. Rides were 25 cents, and the proceeds benefited the Union Home for orphans of soldiers and sailors. Basically, it works like this. Once the car was loaded and the doors shut, the giant fan would blow into the tunnel, forcing the car along a track through the brick tube. When it was time to head back the other direction, it was only 300 feet long, the fan was reversed, creating suction, or a vacuum, in the tube. This would draw the passenger car back to the original location. People loved it, yet, brilliant as it may have been, it didn't last long. For a few years, it was operated as a demonstration. Beach had the vision to create an entire system like this one over much of the city, making it easy for large numbers of people to move quickly without creating traffic jams. It was also clean, safe, and stable. But finding funding and investors was tough, especially after the stock market crash. Additionally, other people, with a lot more influence than he, had other ideas and led the city to a decision to build an elevated train system instead. It wasn't until 1912 that the New York subway system was begun albeit with more familiar means of locomotion. Today, millions of people travel underneath cities all over the world, every single day. Though there's never been a pneumatic train for moving people underground in America, Beach was a pioneer in subterranean travel. Recently, a business led by Elon Musk has designed plans for a type of pneumatic train called the Hyperloop to connect Los Angeles, California with San Francisco, California. This idea is certainly a reflection of Beach's ideas from the 1870s, and though Beach's train tunnel is long gone today, with little to no trace left behind in New York, his idea for pneumatic mail movement did eventually happen in New York City. From 1897 to 1953, a network of pneumatic tubes carried mail all over the city, including the four-minute zip from Brooklyn to Manhattan. I'm gonna sit right down and write myself a letter And make believe that it came from you I'm gonna write words oh so sweet They're gonna knock me off my feet Kisses on the bottom I'll be glad I've got him I'm gonna smile and say I hope you're feeling better And sign with love the way you like to do 
sit right down and write myself a letter and make believe that it came from you. Sit right down and write myself a letter and make believe that it came from you. I'm gonna write words so sweet, they're gonna knock me off my feet. Kisses on. I'll be glad I've got 'em. Gonna say I hope you're feeling better and sign with love the way you like to do. I'm gonna sit right down, right my. Self a letter and make believe that it came from you. Hey, everybody, thanks for listening. Again, if you enjoy and you want to help us succeed and continue to create, at this point, we need listeners. Leave a review on iTunes. Leave a review on Stitcher. Tell other people. Share it in social media. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're The Past and the Curious. You can find all of those links on our main website, thepastandthecurious.com. We're really excited about the next episode and the other eight or so that we are currently working on. You should see the next one in December. We're also excitedly working on some really fun children's books of a few strange, intriguing, and hilarious stories from the past paired with beautiful and creative artwork. Some really, really awesome stuff. I'm really excited. So stay tuned, please. You're definitely going to want to know more about that. Uh, Again, thank you. Spread the word. And most importantly, be nice to people. 